Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's, this sermon is actually the sermon that I preach to myself every single day, several times a day, and maybe you'll figure out why in a moment. Nehemiah chapter 9, let's pray one more time. Father, as we come to your word, we're dependent on your spirit to illumine our minds. We just read how Israel rebelled against you, but you were merciful and gracious to them. You've been merciful and gracious to us. And God, there's so many of us here today who need to be set free by the gospel this morning. So I pray that as your word goes forth, that with the Holy Spirit's power, the gospel would come and be like a SWAT team standing on the porch of our hearts, banging on the door, and then boom, knocking down our doors and rescuing us from our slavery to sin and our slavery to ourselves. May the gospel come in today, Father. Break down the doors of our hearts so that we could be set free for your glory. Help us, and we believe you're going to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to cover a lot of real estate in just one chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to take a crash course in the history of Israel. We're actually going to take an Old Testament history class. And an Old Testament history class, a survey class, may actually be the very thing that sets many of you free this morning. That you actually walk out those doors a different person. And all that's going to come to an Old Testament survey class. Who would have thought? Well, unfortunately, the biblical authors did not anticipate pastors having only 30 to 40 minutes to preach such long chapters. So we're gonna have to cover all that Nehemiah's put together today. But we'll see a pattern emerge that you and I are intimately familiar with. So even though Nehemiah was not familiar with a church that has three services every Sunday and therefore has time restrictions, even though he was not familiar with that when he wrote this lengthy chapter that has to be covered in one sermon, Nehemiah is intimately familiar with God's people and what characterizes them in every single generation. And he shows us that pattern in Nehemiah chapter 9, a pattern that we are all too familiar with. God's grace, our rebellion, our repentance, God's grace. And then our rebellion and our repentance and then God's grace comes to us and then we rebel and then we repent and then God's grace comes to us again and then we rebel and then we repent and God's grace comes to us again. This chapter in Nehemiah is us, grace. It is us looking into a mirror. It is us reading our own diaries. It is reading your own mail. It is reading your own heart. But you have to be exposed first before the gospel can set you free. But notice the purpose of this chapter. It's to point us to our need of a savior. It's to point us to Jesus and to spur the people of God on to being the city of God, of being the people of God on the earth. This chapter is not designed to paralyze you because it exposes your sin, 
This chapter is meant to motivate you and to motivate me. And what motivates God's people? Is, is it morbid introspection in our hearts, dragging a net through the sea of forgetfulness? Does that change us? Is it an unhealthy focus on our sin and on our depravity? No. Nehemiah will show us that God's grace is what motivates God's people to obedience. God's grace is what motivates God's people to live for his kingdom and to live for his glory. Oh, to be sure, Nehemiah is going to talk about Israel's sin in this chapter. But Nehemiah will tip the scales in the favor of God's grace, God's favor, God's mercy in order to prompt obedience. So chapter nine will focus on God's grace and that will lead to the renewal of the covenant that we'll look at next week in chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter nine is a picture of sanctification for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah nine will show us that growth happens in the Christian life When we get our eyes off of ourselves and we turn them to Jesus. So our big idea today is this. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Focus on your Savior and not on your behavior. What I mean is that an unhealthy focus and an unhealthy fascination on your sin and your failures will not prompt you to Christian growth. You must look outside of yourself to grow as a Christian. You must look to Jesus. You must look to the gospel. You must remember what God has already done for you in the gospel. You must do what we say here all the time, rehearse the gospel. And this just makes sense if God is sovereign. Think about it. If Jesus is the center of salvation and it's all about his glory, then it just makes sense that he be the focus of our growth in holiness. It just makes sense that Jesus should be our focus when we talk about sanctification and becoming conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. It's by focusing on Jesus that we grow. By focusing on Jesus We change. By remembering what Jesus has already done, we have strength for future obedience. Why? Because Jesus is the center of everything in the Christian life, and we are not. Jesus is supreme, even in what propels us in sanctification. As I mentioned, we're covering a lot of real estate in Nehemiah today, so Let's get busy. Look at verse 1 and hear the word of the gracious God that we serve. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped Yahweh, the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried with a loud voice to Yahweh, the Lord their God. And then the Levites, 
Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethathiah said, Stand up and bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Here in chapter 9, the people of God returned to the repentance that they started last week in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. Remember, they heard the words of the law. They were exposed. They were grieved. And Ezra said, stop. It's not a day to grieve. It's a time to celebrate. Go eat good steak. Go drink good wine and celebrate. They returned to that repentance now. They spent a week celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And now they return for more corporate worship. Notice in verse 2 that it says they separated themselves to God and to each other away from the surrounding nations. This is what the people of God are to do in any age. Leave our normal life, leave our normal duties and gather together as the community of God on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath, on Sunday. That's what we're called to do. In fact, I just read a great quote this morning from the Desiring God blog by David Mathis, talking about the need for us to hear the weekly preaching of God's word. He says this, but preaching is that one half hour each week when the assembly of the redeemed closes her collective mouth, opens her ears and heart, and hears the uninterrupted voice of her husband, that's Jesus, through his appointed mouthpiece, fallible though the messenger be. And trust me, this messenger is fallible. I feel sorry for you that I'm the mouthpiece that you must hear each week. But we gather weekly to hear from fallible messengers like me and the other pastors here. And we close our collective mouths because we've all been running our mouths all week, haven't we? Giving our opinions, talking about people, going to social media, ranting about things. And for half an hour a week, we come here and we close our collective mouths and open our hearts and our ears to hear what our husband, Jesus, would say to his bride, the church. And that's exactly what Israel is doing here. Notice also how the pattern of worship hasn't changed. They hear God's word. They confess their sins and then they rejoice. This is the biblical pattern. Worship is hearing God's word, hearing the law and letting it do its work of exposing our sin. And then we repent and then we worship because we hear the announcement of the gospel, the announcement of good news. That God forgives sinners like us because of his son Jesus. And then we worship God because he graciously forgives us. Well, the nation is called in verse 5 then to stand up and bless Yahweh. To bless the Lord for his grace, his unmerited favor. And that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor to sinners. You can't earn God's grace. No No amount of obedience... No amount of repentance earns God's grace or his favor or his love. God gives his favor to sinners because of Jesus Christ and what he has done and not because of what we have done. 
And so the Levites call the people to worship the Lord. But notice how they redirect their attention away from their current situation to the character of God. Notice how they direct the people to the character of Yahweh. I mean, the city building project likely had uh, a few loose ends to clean up, maybe some trash and things. They're still surrounded by their enemies. Some of the Israelites are still dirt poor. And where do the leaders direct their attention? Where do the Levites, the pastors of the day, the spiritual leaders, where do they point the nation as they worship? They point Israel to the glorious reality of the gracious God that they serve. They are reminded of who God is and what he has done for them. And so the group text message that the Levites sent out to every iPhone in Israel said this, focus on your savior, not on your behavior. And that's what we're called to do here every week at Grace. Focus less on our circumstances, less on our shortcomings, less on our failures, less on our sins, and focus more on God's character and his word. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel will continue doing throughout this chapter. So look at verse 6, where they start to unload grace. Verse 6, you are Yahweh, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are Yahweh, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." So this community prayer continues and it highlights God as creator and redeemer. Redeemer. So the Lord, the prayer says, preserves all of his creation. This is what theologians call common grace. He showers grace down on sinners who never repent. He's that good. He's that gracious that God sends rain and gives crops even to those people who hate and despise his name. There are sinners living on the central coast right now at the beach soaking up the weather, soaking up the beach, and they don't give a rip about Jesus. But in his common grace, he showers down his grace on them. But God gives special grace to his elect people, to those who have been adopted into his family. Notice that verse seven highlights the election of Abram. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. The election of Abram by the Lord was based on God's choice of Abram and not Abram's choice of God. So God showers his common grace on all of creation, but his special grace, in his special grace, he chooses his elect people to be in covenant with him. We also see God's grace when the Lord promised Abraham the land and God was faithful to his promises. It's another picture of God's grace, another demonstration that this is just how God rolls. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenant. But there's more grace in this chapter that we need to read, so look at verse nine. 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. And you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This prayer focuses on Israel's history. It's full of God's grace. It's, it's like a, a seminary class, Old Testament Survey 101. But what you see throughout all of this is God's grace to Israel. First you see it where they mention redemption. This prayer recalls the Lord's grace in seeing the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt. The signs and the wonders that Yahweh performed in Egypt. Their deliverance, their crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. That was all grace. And then you see God's grace in the cloud and the fire. How the Lord in his grace gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night. This was grace. Cloud and fire not only directed them where to go, but it served another purpose. The cloud guarded them and protected them from the hot desert sun during the day. It acted like sunscreen. And the fire at night kept them warm as the temperatures dropped in the desert. This was grace. It was very practical grace. And then God graciously gave them his law. Give them gracious laws. God clearly told the nation what he expected of them. Unlike the gods of the ancient Near East that they had heard about, Marduk and Tiamat, Yahweh clearly spelled out what he expected of his people. He spelled out very clearly what he expected of them in his law. It was grace. And in the grace, he gave them manna. The manna showed up on their doorstep every single morning. That's grace. Groceries on your doorstep when you wake up. No crowded Costco crowd to deal with. Just open up your front door and voila, grace groceries. And then God gave them water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. All of this was his grace. I think that's what this prayer and these prayers are praying in this prayer. They're saying to the nation of Israel, look, open your eyes, nation of Israel. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, has been nothing but good to us. He redeemed us, protected us, provided for us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and the same is true for us today. He has been nothing but good to us. This truth, the truth of his goodness, the truth of his grace to sinners like us is what should prompt obedience and sanctification in our lives. As Sinclair Ferguson says, we must never separate the benefits, regeneration, justification, sanctification. We must never separate the benefits from the benefactor, Jesus Christ. 
The Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual. But from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. Historically speaking, whenever the piety of a particular group is focused on our spirituality, that piety will eventually exhaust itself of its own resources. Only when our piety forgets about us and focuses on Jesus Christ will our piety be nourished by the ongoing resources the Spirit brings to us from the source of all true piety, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only when we focus on what Christ has done for us and not on what we have or haven't done for him that we grow and progress spiritually. Focusing on how terrible you are will never prompt obedience. Obedience comes from continually gazing at Jesus Christ. And that's the Apostle Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's basically saying, beholding is becoming. Beholding Jesus Christ. Only when we behold Jesus Christ do we become like him. And that's what this prayer is doing here in Nehemiah. There is an acknowledgement of sin, yes, but the scales tip with an overwhelming emphasis on God's grace. And it does that because the focus of the Christian life is not the Christian or the life that the Christian lives. Hear me out. The focus of the Christian life is not the Christian or the life that the Christian lives. The focus of the Christian life is the life that Jesus Christ already lived for us in the past when he fully obeyed the law of God. That's the focus of the Christian life. The perfect life lived by Jesus when he was on earth and the perfect death that he died in our place because we never could or can keep God's law perfectly. So what we must keep doing is keep pointing Ourself and others to Jesus Christ because that's where we see God's grace. And there's more grace in this chapter, so I need to point you to verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. 
And so we see that same pattern that we're all too familiar with. God is gracious to his people. They sin and rebel against him. They repent. He forgives and he restores. And then God is gracious to his people. They sin and they rebel against him and they repent and he forgives and restores. It's all grace. And we see that with what Yahweh did for Israel. As mentioned in verses 16 to 21, he performed miracles in Egypt. Yahweh did not abandon them. He did not abandon them when they worshiped the golden calf. He gave them the cloud by day and the fire by night. That never departed. He instructed them by the Holy Spirit. He fed them manna. He gave them water out of the rock. He even kept their clothes from rotting and their shoes from falling to pieces. And he kept their feet from swelling for 40 years. It was all grace. But there's more. There's more grace to be found in this prayer. Listen as his grace continues in verses 22 to 31. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Again, this is nothing but a rehearsing, a remembering, a recounting of the grace of God that comes to sinners like us. This is just another reminder to focus on your Savior and not on your behavior. Understand this grace, we actually perform better, we actually grow as a Christian as we grow in our understanding that our relationship with God is not based on our performance for God, but Jesus' performance for us. Christian growth does not happen through behaving better, 
Christian growth happens by believing better. Growth happens as we believe everything that Jesus has already done for us. Growth happens when we actually believe the gospel. I mean, we really believe the gospel. Growth happens when we actually believe that God is that good. That he is as gracious as he says he is. We will only grow as disciples when we realize what Jesus Christ has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so here's the hard work of sanctification. Here's the hardest part about being a Christian. It's this, to think less of me and less of my performance for God and to think more of Jesus and his performance for me. The irony is that we actually get worse when we focus on ourselves. We actually get worse when we become obsessed with our behavior. We become self-absorbed over our performance. We become self-centered as we are consumed with our behavior. As Steve Brown says, the reason we're so bad is that we're trying so hard to be good. You just try to be good, and what happens? You realize how bad you are. Remembering Jesus is what propels us forward in obedience, not some morbid introspection and unhealthy focus on our depravity and our sinfulness. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. And that's why Nehemiah is looking back over Israel's history and is not focusing so much on their sin and failure. Instead, he keeps highlighting God's grace because Nehemiah knows that guilt never produces holiness. Only grace does. And you know this in your life. Anytime somebody makes you feel guilty about something you should do, what happens? You don't want to do it, even though they make you feel guilty. Guilt never produces holiness. Only grace does. Only grace makes Christians grow. Guilt never does that. Guilt paralyzes you. That's why I never want to make you feel guilty on Sunday. You might be convicted by God's word. You might be leveled by the law, but the pastors here will never try to guilt you into obedience. We're here to point you to Jesus, knowing that only Jesus will spur you on to sanctification, to holiness, to transformation. So that's a quick survey of the Old Testament, and now Nehemiah is caught up to the present day in his prayer. But there's more grace. Look at verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or pay attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. 
Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. That last verse is actually the verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible of chapter 10. So we'll pick up there next week. But Nehemiah recognizes that the people have sinned. They are slaves in their own home. Yahweh rescued them from the clutches of Babylon, brought them back to the promised land. But they're still slaves to the king of Persia. Because Persia is the big dog in the ancient Near East at this point, and, and Israel is still slaves to Persia. They didn't have their own king, so now they are praying to the Lord and asking for him to intervene. And verse 38 says that they are renewing the covenant with the Lord. Based on the history of his grace to them, they are ready to commit, to recommit to following the Lord. We'll see that in chapter 10. The nation of Israel will make this commitment to follow Yahweh wholeheartedly in chapter 10, but we know that they won't keep it. We've already seen their pattern, and we're all too familiar with it in our own lives, aren't we? But that's why Jesus came, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that's why we must keep our eyes on Jesus. As Tolian Chavidjan says, when the goal becomes conquering our sin, instead of soaking in the conquest of our Savior, we actually begin to shrink spiritually. When the goal of the Christian life becomes conquering sin, instead of soaking in the conquest of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we actually begin to shrink spiritually. Yes, we are called to fight sin. Yes, we are called to hate sin. Yes, we are called to mortify sin and to put it to death. And we're going to have a grace seminary class on this, on mortification, as the Puritans called it, putting sin to death. We believe in that. But our, our holiness is not the focus of the Christian life. Jesus is the focus of the Christian life. Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And it flows out of being in union with Christ. And that's why the doctrine of, the, of union with Christ is so important. Because all that we have and all that we are as believers flows out of the fact that we are in union with him. So let me ask you. What if your holiness was the point of Christianity? What if your obedience and your commitment was the point of Christianity? Would you feel good right now? I wouldn't. If you think your holiness is the point of Christianity, I want to ask you, how's that working out for you? How was your last week? I wouldn't feel good right now. Why? Because I'm a failure just like Israel in this chapter They'll make a commitment that we'll look at next week in chapter 10. But they won't be able to keep it. Next week, with good intentions, they're going to say, we're going to keep all the law and we call a curse down upon ourselves if we don't keep it. And you read it and you're like, ah, don't say that. It's, it's good that you want to follow the Lord, but don't say that. But they're just like you and me because we make commitments all the time to God and we don't keep them. 
Just like you and me tell God all the time, please forgive me, Lord, please forgive me, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again, I'll never do it again. And what happens? You do it again. That's us. This is us, Grace. That means then that Christianity is not first about getting better. Christianity not, is not first about our obedience. Christianity is not first about our performance. Christianity is not first about our daily victory over sin. As important as these things are, Christianity is first about Jesus. Duh. But we've lost sight of that. Discipleship. It's about remembering what Jesus has done first and not what I must do. See, here's the irony. We actually start obeying God when we quit neurotically obsessing over our performance. We actually start obeying God. We actually start growing as Christians. We actually start growing in holiness. We actually start becoming conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ when we quit neurotically obsessing over our performance. Did I read the Bible today? Did I pray enough? Did I do enough? When we quit obsessing over our need to be holy and begin to focus on Christ's holiness, then we actually start becoming holy. Because if you focus on you, one of two things will happen. And I mentioned this last week. One of two things. If you focus on yourself, one of two things happens. You become one of the two brothers in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, which is really the parable of the prodigal father. You either become an older brother in self-righteousness or a younger brother who's paralyzed by his sin. So one of two things happen when you focus on yourself. One, you get prideful. And you start thinking things like this. Nobody reads the Bible as much as me. Nobody in this church cares about this situation, whatever it is. There's so many lazy Christians. They don't love Jesus like I do. They don't pray like I do. They don't care about blank. If you look at yourself and all that you do for God, then pride will be a cancer growing in your heart. And what will actually happen is it will blind you. You will become self-righteous. You will be blind. You won't see it. You'll run your mouth about how good you are and how terrible all the other Christians are, and you'll be blind. And everybody else around will see it and say, that person's so full of themselves. They think they're so good. They think they're so perfect. They're actually blind. They can't even see it because that's what self-righteousness does. It makes us blind and it puffs us up. Or if you look at yourself, the second thing that might happen is you'll get depressed. I don't read the Bible enough. I should have prayed more. I must not care about that situation, blank. God must be disappointed with me. I can't even read one chapter a day. I'm a loser. If you look at yourself and all that you don't do for God, depression and sadness and guilt will overwhelm you and it will actually paralyze you. Which is why J. Gresham Machen, founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, said this. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we are not under law. We are under grace. Because do, do, do this, do this, do this does not change us. Ask your kids. 
You tell them to clean their messy room, does that change them? Every time you tell them to clean their room, you know what happens? This monster of sin rises up inside of them, and they may not voice it, but inside they're saying, I don't want to do that. When your boss tells you to do something, by nature, you don't want to do it. Because do, 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 law never changes us. What changes us is done, done, done. It is finished. Jesus Christ has done it all for you. What changes us is what has already been done by Christ. What Jesus has done is what prompts change and transformation. Being overwhelmed with the gospel prompts obedience and change, not a focus on our sinfulness and failures. So where do you need to see more sanctification and discipleship happening in your life? Where do you need more gospel commitment? Where do you need to renew covenant priorities? Identify them, take note of them, and then begin to soak in the gospel. Begin to remember that your commitment to God is based on his commitment to you. Think about Jesus. Let his performance for you through his sinless life, his death, and his resurrection be what spurs you on to obedience. Soak in the indicatives of the gospel, what's already been done for you, and then let that drive you to the imperatives of the gospel, the commandments of the gospel. Let's just let the cat out of the bag, shall we? If we haven't already. You are a failure at parenting and marriage and work and serving and giving and discipleship and prayer and evangelism and Bible reading. You fill in the blank. You will fail at all of these at some point, just like Israel in this passage. The nation of Israel will go on next week in chapter 10 and say, we can keep the law. We will do what we say we will do. But you've read the Bible and you know your own heart. Israel fails repeatedly just like us. The people of God have always been caught in the cycle of God's grace, our rebellion, our repentance, God's grace, our rebellion, our repentance, God's grace. So, hey, at least we're in this together. You know, there's not just a couple of us here. This is all of us. This is everybody since Genesis 3, except for one person, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. Because God's law is the standard. Perfection without sin. God's law is the standard, and we continually fail at it. But Jesus came and he lived the life that God's law required of every single one of us. And he died the death that God's law pronounced over us because none of us can keep that. And he took the curse of the law upon himself, which was rightfully ours because of our disobedience. And he took that upon himself even though he fully obeyed the law. And God raised him from the dead and he's coming again. That's the gospel. And that should be where your focus is. His life, the life that he already lived for you and not yours. Don't focus on your failure. Okay, don't, you know how many times I've said, okay, we're doing family devotions. It's gonna be 20 minutes. It's gonna be Jesus story, but Bible, and we're gonna pray. You know how many times we get like two minutes in and one kid has to go to the bathroom and get a drink of water. I get mad and it's like, ah, forget it. 
And how many times I'm like, okay, this week, this week we're gonna do it. Man, we're gonna hit a home run. We're really gonna do it. And we fail. And this week I'm gonna read the Bible this much. And this week I am getting up at 4 a.m. This is us, except one man who when the alarm clock went off, got up and prayed. One man who said, I have come to do your law. And he did. His name is Jesus, which is where our focus should be. So don't focus on your failure. Own up to your sin. Own up to it. Repent, hate it, kill it. But focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. We actually behave better when we start believing better. May God make us a church that believes better, believes the gospel better and better and better and more and more. And may we behold Jesus Christ more and more so that we will become like Jesus Christ more and more. Focus on him and you will grow. It's time to stand and to sing hallelujah which means praise Yahweh. It's, it actually means y'all praise Yahweh. There's a little southernness to the Hebrew word hallelujah. It means y'all, you all, y'all praise Yahweh. It's time to stand and sing hallelujah, praise Yahweh. Because grace, unmerited favor that I could never get on my own, grace has fallen on us like rain. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh, all of our sins are washed away. They're gone, Grace. They're gone. When God sees you right now, he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, his heart beats fast because he loves his son, and that's how he sees you now, Christian. He sees his son. He's not mad at you anymore, Christian. He doesn't see your sins anymore. He knows them, but he doesn't see them. He doesn't deal with you that way because he's already dealt with your sins at the cross. So I think it might be appropriate We might say, duh, it might be appropriate to stand and sing, praise Yahweh, all our sins are washed away. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Oh God, Nehemiah 9 is a mirror. I see my reflection. It's turning away from you all the time. And yet you're so merciful and so gracious because of your son. This is our story, God. But our failures and our sins don't define us. Our identity is that we are in union with your son. And all of his benefits come to us because we're in union with him. And so we stand in your presence now completely forgiven. Sins washed away, covered with the imputed righteousness of your son. And for that we want to stand and sing Hallelujah, grace falls like rain. Hallelujah, all our sins are washed away. To God be the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Now, doesn't that make you wanna go obey him? Doesn't that make you wanna love your spouse, love your kids, serve doesn't that make you want to go into the gym and sign up to serve in Awana? <laughs> Capitalize on the feeling now and then deal with the consequences later. What have I done? 
is how God's grace is designed to work as you rehearse the gospel. Now, unfortunately, the band, Chet and the band, can't be in your living room every morning when you wake up. It would be great if you could call them and say, I'm not feeling like God loves me. Help me rehearse the gospel. So you have to learn to do that yourself through the power of the Spirit, with the promises of God in his word, saying, help me, help me, help me to believe the gospel better and better this morning. You have to learn to do that on your own. That's what it means to be a disciple. So go, serve, sign up, go love on people, and rehearse the gospel. You'll actually start growing. Would you bow for benediction? May you leave here today beholding Jesus Christ and then becoming more like him for God's glory and your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.